0: Well, good morning. We are continuing our trek through the Gospel of Matthew this morning, just as Pastor Peter would have us do. And, and hasn't it been good so far? Hasn't this series been good? I have, as I've thought through this, um, I have just thoroughly enjoyed this series uh, as Pastor Peter has walked us through this magnificent Gospel, which really just points us again and again to the reality that, that Jesus is the culmination. He's the fulfillment, the completion of all of the Old Testament, the promises, the types, and the shadows. He is the long-awaited Messiah. And I I think I'm almost at a point, I don't know if this is from from sitting under Pastor Peter for so long, or just my own study, I think I'm almost at a point where if someone were to walk up to me and seriously ask the question, hey, what should I read to know about Jesus, His purpose, what He came for, I, I would almost just say, just start in Genesis. Read through Malachi. If, if we don't know the Old Testament and understand what it's telling us, the Gospels, they're just not going to come to life. And, and I fear that for, for, for many of us, we just miss the Old Testament. But we're going we're to see Christ for who He is in this passage today. But before we get started, let's ask the Lord for His help. Father in heaven, thank you for gathering your people here this morning to study and learn and hear from your word. Each one of us walked into this room carrying the baggage of yet another week from a fallen world. And we need to see you. We need to hear from our God this morning. We need to be refreshed by your truth We need to see Jesus. So Father, I pray, I ask, I plead with you to set Christ before us this morning by your word and through your spirit. Help us, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we find ourselves in chapter 16 this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 20, if you want to go ahead and turn there, Matthew 16, 1 through 20. While you're doing that, let me remind us of where we are in terms of the storyline of Matthew's gospel. So you will recall that Matthew has structured his gospel in such a way as to be woven around five great discourses or, or teaching passages. We know that each one of those end in something to the effect of, and when Jesus had finished saying these things. So Matthew has clearly set those passages out for us to see. So chapters 5 and 7, that was the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 10 was when Jesus launched his disciples. Chapter 13 is the series of parables on the kingdom. And we're going to see in chapter 18 another series of parables about life in the kingdom. And then chapters 24 and 25 is, is what's known as the Olivet Discourse. That's the consummation of the kingdom. So we see these, these five passages, and by that structure, we see that we're in between the third and fourth discourses. There's some activities, some interaction taking place, and that's a good way of understanding the flow of Matthew. That, that's a helpful way. But there's another way of understanding the structure of Matthew's gospel, and that's looking by the geography, paying particular attention to the locations and movement of Jesus' ministry, where he's at and what he's doing. And so by that structure, we see sort of, Three basic phases of, of movement or location for Jesus and his disciples. Where's, where's his ministry taking place at? The first phase is in and around Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, out in the countryside, that surrounding area. The second phase is the journey southward. So once, once Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, they begin the journey south. And so that, that encompasses some passages. And then the third phase, as we know, is in and around Jerusalem, where Jesus ultimately meets his death on the cross and the resurrection. So before that, you've got a little intro and a prologue, and at the end, we see that very last scene back in Galilee, where he meets his disciples there on the mountain, and he issues the Great Commission, right? But the reason I'm pointing this this structure out, this geographical flow, is because it gives us a little insight into our passage today. This chapter, chapter 16, is really the ending of the Galilean ministry. So, Jesus has spent some time here. He's ministered to these people. And he's going to wrap things up. We're going to see him and his disciples go up to Caesarea Philippi, which is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And he's going to minister there. And that's probably the location where uh, he's going to be transfigured on the mountain. We're going to see in chapter 17, maybe next week. Um, And then they're going to travel south towards Jerusalem. And so by necessity, they're going to travel back through Galilee. But really, when they come back through, Jesus isn't going to be doing any outward ministry. He's only going to be focused on his disciples. So this is it. This is the the culmination, the the last interaction, the last exchange he's going to be having in this area. And so we see that Matthew has, has recorded for us three uh, views are three responses to the identity of Jesus and this, this culmination of ministry in this area. And so we're going to see Jesus having an increased focus on his identity, on who he is. And it culminates, in this last section that we're going to look at today, in him giving a point-blank question to his disciples about his identity. So that's, that's where we're headed. So let's look at verses 1 through 4, Matthew 16... We're going to see Jesus' identity rejected. Verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. But you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Now, if we're just noticing things about this text, this passage, the first thing that should kind of stick out is that this sounds very familiar, right? It was just last month in this series back in chapter 12, where Jesus had a very similar interaction. Flip, flip back to uh, chapter 12 there. Look at verse 38. Chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, Pastor Peter covered this passage thoroughly. You can go back and listen to it. He covered uh, asking God for signs, and he talked about what this sign of Jonah really meant. So I'm not going to cover those things again. But we need to notice a couple of differences back in chapter 16 from this passage. The first is this group who is confronting Jesus. Chapter 12, it was some of the scribes and Pharisees. Now it is this unusual pairing of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And and that should stand out to us. The fact that these two groups are seemingly working together. They've been mentioned once before in Matthew's Gospel it was back in chapter 3 when they went out to, to size up, to investigate John the Baptist's ministry there by the, the Jordan River. And, and you may rem- remember his, his words to them. They showed up on the scenes and he called them a brood of vipers. Right? So that's kind of the, the, uh, the atmos- atmosphere there when they showed up. But why do I say this is an unusual pairing here as they are confronting Jesus? Well, they both represent the Sanhedrin. the the ruling Jewish council of the day. But theologically, they come from very different positions. Okay, so you're going to remember that the Pharisees are the strict observers of the law, of their traditions. They like to show everyone their self-righteousness. They're very ostentatious in their outward display of their self-righteousness. Sadducees, on the other hand, they were marked by self-indulgence. Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife, no resurrection. So for them, it was all about the here and now. It was, let me gain as much power and influence and affluence as I can because tomorrow we die. That was, that was their uh, attitude. And so we would probably consider these guys to be some of the more theological liberals of the day. And again and again, throughout these Gospels, not just in Matthew, but throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus confronting these so-called religious types with, with, he calls them blatant false teachers, right? He calls them sheeps and wolves' clothing, whitewashed tombs. They have seen and heard Jesus' miracles. They, they've, they've witnessed those things and yet they have, they've rejected him again and again. Their self-righteousness on, on one hand and their self-indulgence on the other has blinded them to who Jesus is. But here they are. They're they're seemingly united together, demanding yet another sign from Jesus to prove who he was. Another sign. Anyone think that had Jesus stepped up and done something special, performed another sign, you think that would have been the turning point for these guys? I don't think so. Their position was one of hardened hearts. But isn't it remarkable that people from such different positions, different agendas, can join together against the things of God. As you look out in the world and you, and you see these things happening, do you, do you think, do you ask yourself, well, why is that happening? Why is it that when a Christian baker or a Christian florist can choose not to go against their conscience in sin in participating in a gay wedding, why does the pile-on begin? Why does the, the mob come out in full force? Otherwise, unaligned groups of people aligning themselves to attack Christians, to attack Christianity. Well, I hope that when we see these things, we realize that there is a far deeper spiritual reality taking place than anything the news will ever portray. Ephesians 6.12 is a, is a familiar passage, but we need to be informed by it. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As, as people seeking to have biblical worldviews, and I hope that that fits you, we need to be informed by these categories. The, the God of this world, Satan himself, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we need to have that in our minds first of all. He does not hesitate to rally his forces against the things of God. We see it again and again. And, and as Christians, we need to understand that this is why the world is so confrontational against us and our beliefs Jesus says in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And I just... I read that passage. I read passages like that and I wonder how often we forget that there are eternal realities happening in what we see around us. We get caught up in discussions and and arguments in person and, and online. It's a great place to have arguments these days. And we don't even give a second thought to what's really happening in that moment. But Jesus... He obviously knew what was going on in this moment, right? And he was having none of it. He, he sees through this consortium for what it is. He sees through the Pharisees and Sadducees. He sees through their demand to their rejection of him. And his response, just like it was back in chapter 12, is absolutely striking. Look, look back at verse 2 there. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Jesus is saying, you you can interpret something like the weather but you, you're incapable of seeing eternal realities. You cannot interpret the signs of the times, he says. Your focus on the temporal, your focus on the here and now, your, your self-righteousness on one hand, your self-indulgence on the other, it's blinded you to what God is doing in your midst. It has, it's literally blinded them to, to the fact that God was bringing the Messiah into his kingdom, in front of them, right in front of their eyes. And they were blinded to to that reality. And I think we would do well to pick up on Jesus' warning here. And he's going to emphasize it again in, in the next passage we look at with his disciples. On one hand, we can easily fall into religious activity. Empty religious activities at times looking and sounding pietistic, being the morality police of the world. We love doing that. We can get caught up in being church members and church goers, being involved in this church ministry and and that church ministry, and all those things can be good and are good, but they can begin to take the place of a real, vibrant relationship with God. The, The activity itself Begins to become our identity. Instead of who we are in Christ. But on the other hand. On the side of the Sadducees. There is this sort of. Antinomian. Mindset. That the idea that the law doesn't matter. That. Pursuing holiness. Isn't important. I think pursuing holiness is just. Is just absent from so many of our radars. I can be as worldly as I like. I can be entertained by the things of the world. Just like the world. Because after all, I'm I'm saved. Right? Life is meant for ease and pleasure. And I think Jesus would remind us that both mindsets will lead us astray. Both mindsets blind us to eternal realities. And in this case, from truly encountering Jesus. And so look then at how he ends this exchange. Remember, this is the last interaction he's having in this area. He's getting ready to move on. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. You feel the finality of that? No more argument. No more discussion. Time for conversation is over. It reminds me of Jesus' words back in chapter 17. Excuse me, chapter 7. Do not cast your pearls before swine. There are times when by the Holy Spirit's leading, we just need to shut up. We just need to say, that's that's enough. I'm not going to try to make that one last point. I'm not going to try to win the argument. But we need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit's leading. And, And clearly... Jesus had no interest in drawing out this conversation. But there's one more thing I want to point to from this interaction, and it's the contrast it presents with the last group who came to Jesus wanting something. Look back up in chapter 15, very quickly, to verse 29. Chapter 15, uh, verse 29. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Isn't that amazing? They came to Jesus literally carrying their burdens. They came laying their sick family members at Jesus' feet. They came in acknowledgement of who Jesus is and they expected something powerful to happen because of who he was. And look at how Jesus responded. Such a beautiful little phrase. And he healed them. And he healed them. And on the surface, perhaps, it appears as though the the Pharisees and Sadducees are coming seeking the truth, if we just kind of read quickly past it. But in reality, their demand for yet another sign serves to show their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. They came and laid their skepticism, their unbelief at Jesus' feet. And he turned and walked away. Bringing skeptical, skeptical questions and ploys to Jesus to get him to perform for us is an eternity away from bringing our needs to Jesus in acknowledgement of his authority and rule over our lives. But we need to, need to move on here. Look at verses 5 through 12. And let's see Jesus' identity re-emphasized. Verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith! Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but there are, there are times when I want to hug the disciples, and there are times when I want to smack them. And this would be one of the latter. Here they are having witnessed Jesus heal people again and again. They've literally watched him walk on water. They've watched him take a little bit of bread and a few fish and feed thousands of people two different times and they're worried because they forgot to pack lunch. They're focused on the temporal situation. Having apparently completely missed the signs that the Lord of the universe, hear that, the Lord of the universe was sitting in their midst. But right as I get ready to smack them for being so dense, I realize I am them. All right, the, the Lord of glory, the King of kings, the creator and sustainer of galaxies, of planets, of molecules, of atoms, who at this very moment is causing every single one of our hearts to beat again, and again, and Again. It's this God who has promised me I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's promised me that all things are working together for my good, not some things, not not just the good things. The most heinous things that happen in my life, God says, I'm working that for your good. He's promised me that. He's promised to keep anything from ever separating me from his love. He's promised that He will bring to completion that which He began in me. And with all of that, I too find myself worrying about bread, about temporal things, about things that, in light of who Jesus is, they're just plain silly. So I am one of the the disciples. And so, Jesus, as he, as he often does, he uses the disciples, in this case, misplaced concern over bread, as a teachable moment. He's going to reemphasize some things with him. Jesus warns them about leaven, meaning the attitude or perspective of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's warning them that a lack of faith can spread, just as leaven or, or yeast in a loaf of bread. And he repeatedly asks them, Do you still not understand? Are you too still refusing to see who I am? You're acting like the Pharisees and Sadducees when you reveal your lack of faith in me. So by the end of this exchange in verse 12, we see that at least they appear to begin to understand. So we come now to the, the culmination of the Galilean story. What is it that Jesus has been saying as he's ministered over the countryside and around the the towns in this area? Doing miracles, teaching and speaking in parables. What's the central issue that Matthew wants us to see? Let's look at verse 13 to 17. We're going to see Jesus' identity revealed. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus answered him, "Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven." Now Jesus has not lost, lost his, train, his, his train of thought, thought, excuse me, since the time they were there by the Sea in Galilee. He is still intent on focusing on his identity with his disciples. And I love the way how he starts. It's actually how most of our minds work, I think. Meaning he asks about how other people are doing first. Right? And aren't we good at thinking we know how other people are doing in their, their walks in faith? Progressing, regressing. Sort of takes the, the focus off of us for a moment. Gives us some room to breathe. All right? Well, so-and-so is... So-and-so is... Gives us a moment just to, to breathe. But Jesus gives them all of about a second to linger on other people's issues and then he goes right for the jugular. He zeroes in on their hearts and on our hearts. But who do you say that I am? And before we rush to be the teacher's pet here and raise our hand and give a quick answer, we need to slow down. We need to remember who's asking this question. The Lord overall. Who knows all and sees all, including every little nook and cranny of our lives. Who sees whether knowing him has had any impact on our everyday lives. Jesus says in another place, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. It's this Jesus that's looking us in the face and saying, now, you tell me who I am to you. So we need to give pause when Jesus asks us this question. But Peter, bless his heart, finally gets one right, right? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds with, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Great job, Peter. You you nailed it. And and you can almost feel Peter breathe a sigh of relief, like, I needed that one, right? But just as soon as Peter begins to possibly bask in the approval, Jesus cuts the legs out from under any pride that might have been forming in his heart. For, he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You didn't come to this knowledge, Peter, this awareness of who I am, by yourself. Matter of fact, you didn't have anything to do with it. This, this was not something you came up with from within yourself or from someone else. That term flesh and blood there, that's used four other times in the New Testament. Each time it's used to represent something of the ordinary, something of the common, the, the man's natural ability. Everything that is non-supernatural, Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. The ability to see Jesus rightly comes from outside us. Outside of natural flesh and blood ability. It comes by God's grace. And we need to see what Jesus is saying here because theologically speaking, this is huge. This is huge. Jesus is saying that true understanding of himself, of his true identity, you could even call it faith in who he is, comes only through divine revelation. Hmm. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person, the flesh and blood is not able to understand. Now if we were to go back and read Jesus' words to the Pharisees and the Sadducees in verse 3, he says, you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Well that begins to take a a deeper, more profound meaning, doesn't it? You cannot interpret the signs of the times. Let's just ask a question. Why couldn't they interpret the signs of the times? Answer, because it had not been revealed to them. Why could Peter? Because it had been revealed to him. You see that, right? Not doing anything fancy. It's there in the text. But notice, notice, before we begin to spin off inferences that are not biblical, notice also that this, back to this interchange between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, notice also that they are absolutely still responsible for what's in their hearts. Jesus calls them, he says, they are evil and adulterous. For their behavior. So, an inability does not remove a responsibility. That's huge. We need to see that. So, Jesus says in John 6, 46, uh, 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So, if, if you can respond to the question that Jesus has posed to his disciples... The question of, who do you say that I am? If you can respond to that question with a trusting in, all satisfied answer like Peter's, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you can respond with something like that, it's because it's been revealed to you. That's our story, guys. That's our testimony as Christians. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you know this well. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. Why is it a gift? Why is it not by works? So that no one may boast. Just as Jesus cut the legs out from under any pride that might have been forming in Peter's heart, so too... Should the biblical teaching that our ability to acknowledge Christ as Lord, it comes from outside us. We have no place to boast. So that no one may boast. We could honestly spend weeks right here in this little passage. Volumes have been written on this issue, but but we can't. We need to move on here. So let's look at verses 18 through 20 as we finish up. And I should point out, in case you are unaware, that verse 18 has been the cause of much wrong teaching throughout the history of the church. Much wrong teaching. But, in honor of this year, 2017, anybody know what this year is, by the way? It's the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Okay. It's the reason we call ourselves Protestants. So, in in, in light of five hundred years ago, when a German monk named Martin Luther took a document and a and some nails and a hammer and nailed his ninety-five theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, against the Roman Catholic Church, that was five hundred years ago. In honor of that, I'm going to be as clear as I can about verse eighteen. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's great. You're, you're a good Protestant. <laughs> but verse 18, there is nothing, absolutely nothing in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, about any successors to Peter. Amen. Period. It's just not there. It's not there in the text. You can't make it be there. As as one commentator says, this text is not about a supreme pope. It's about a sovereign savior. So, there is debate as to whether Jesus is referring to Peter as the rock or the testimony he had just delivered, meaning the gospel proclaimed. There is debate about that. And I, I think personally, one of the pastors could correct me, but I think both are probably in view here. Peter, no doubt, goes and plays a foundational role in establishing the church, as we know from the book of Acts. Plays a foundational role. But at the same time, there also can be no doubt that the proclamation of the gospel, the spreading of God's word, is how how Jesus was, is, and still builds his church. That's how it happens. So I think probably both are in view there. Jesus himself is the foundation. Let's not miss that. 1 Corinthians three ten to 11 it says, According to the grace of God given to me, this is Paul, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. One more, Paul in, in Ephesians two, nineteen through twenty. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. So let's let's not lose sight of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus has been and we'll continue building his church. It's his church. And even though we are often extremely myopic in fo- focusing on what's happening in our little corner of the world, our little country and all of its problems, Jesus stands over the nations. Over every tribe and people, every tongue. And he is calling his people to himself. He is building his church And he does that by the keys which he gave Peter and the other apostles and by extension he gives to us as his followers which are the proclamation of gospel truth and the teaching of his word. He gives that to us. So when we, on the authority of Christ, on the authority of Christ, proclaim freedom to those who are bound by sin... Jesus takes that proclamation, that key, and loosens for all eternity the chains of His people. You see that? Hmm. The good news for us this morning is that as the gospel goes forth, nothing is going to stop this from happening. So, just watch the news with a grain of salt. Jesus is still on the throne. He's still building His church. He still gathers His church together, just as we're doing right now, to hear the Word taught and to hear the Word proclaimed. And nothing will stop this from happening. Not even the gates of hell. So from this point forward, in Matthew's Gospel, Galilee and its enthusiastic crowds, they, they kind of begin to fade to the background. And so Jesus now sets his face like a flint toward Jerusalem and to the cross. And so we're going to pick it up there next time, verse 21. Thank you, guys.